Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and as we approach the end of the year, I was looking at a couple of the key issues that I've been writing about uh, here at LifeSite News, at the European Conservative, and a variety of other places uh, over the past year, but also over the past couple of years, because I've been spending the last six to eight months working really hard to complete the first draft of the sequel to my 2016 book, The Culture War. And a couple of things have really stood out to me while I'm working on this sequel. There's going to be new chapters. Uh, most of the book will be entirely new material. But what really struck me when I was looking at the, the 2016 book versus the draft that I'm working on now is how many issues have entirely changed. And for the most part, not in a good way. I did a previous podcast on, I think, one positive aspect, for example, of the pornography debate, where I believe that the consensus now is that pornography is cultural poison, that it's transforming the youth in an incredibly negative way. And things had to get bad enough before anybody recognized that. But at least there's the silver lining of we're starting to see public recognition that pornography is pernicious and that pornography is an enormous problem. But in 2016, when The Culture War was published, I had like a couple of paragraphs about transgenderism. And at that point, a lot of people were asking, what was the difference between transgenderism and a transvestite and transsexual? And there was these terms kind of floating around. The terms hadn't really solidified yet. And then things sort of just exploded after that. And only when you kind of look at how uh, fast this has all gone, do you realize how swiftly it has exploded. So in 2016, I was still distinguishing between, okay, this is what the transgender movement is. This is what just an ordinary crossdresser is. And it's insane in so many ways. Uh, that you know, a Christian columnist has to even address these issues because these are the sorts of things that used to lurk on the fringes of society where, quite frankly, I think this sort of stuff belongs. And this is sh- stuff should not be mainstream, but it is, in fact, mainstream because in the less than a decade since then, a gender ideology has been implemented across the board. It has been implemented in our government. And in fact, uh, the Trudeau government in Canada, the Biden government in the United States, most European governments accept gender ideology like entirely or in part uh, as fact. And they govern their decisions that way. That's the way that medicine rules itself. This is the way uh, that our law functions now. Uh, We accept the idea that there is no such thing as a gender binary in law. We accept the idea that people can, quote, change sexes. And even there, we've seen a a huge shift in the the terminology. So just to give an interesting example that I've noticed quite a bit, over uh, the last couple of months, especially, is I, I, I did a call, uh, a podcast, pardon me, some time ago um, here at LifeSite on the issue of language and why I think Jordan Peterson was right in, in refusing to use preferred pronouns. Because I do think that language is really one of the key battlegrounds here. Because what the, the progressive sexual left recognizes is that if they get to choose the terminology, they get to choose the boundaries of the debate. Because the words that we use are incredibly significant. And so if they get to pick the terminology, they are in fact picking the terms of the debate. And they are going to ensure that the terminology they allow us to use while discussing these issues funnels us towards an inevitable conclusion. And that inevitable conclusion is, of course, their conclusion. 
And so back when I started writing about this issue, which would have been around 2013, 2014, people were still talking quite a bit about sex change surgeries. And they were arguing that transsexuals transitioning from one sex to another would have the right to do so and to have access to surgeries that would allow them to facilitate that, to make their outward body, as they would say, feel like their inner mind. But very quickly, they realized that this kind of language actually undermined their premises because the premise of the gender ideology argument is that a woman who says she's a man actually is a man and therefore isn't really transitioning at all. Because if she is transitioning, it means she's moving from one sex to another when the argument she's making is that she has a male soul or she is fundamentally male in some intangible way that cannot be fully explained but must be entirely accepted. And so they started using different terminology. First, it it moved from sex changes to to transition because, of course, sex change sounds much more abrupt. It sounds very surgical. It sounds kind of, you know, like a very big deal. And and a huge part of what the transgender movements tried to do over the past half decade or so is to persuade people that these things are not, in fact, a big deal, that nobody should be scared of them. In fact, there shouldn't even be much of a debate. And they moved quite quickly from transition which is still used occasionally, but very rarely, they moved from transition to gender confirmation surgery. And that was one of the first big uh, switches that I saw because I was like, oh, I can see what they're doing because they're already arguing that we're confirming the gender. So there's, it's not transitioning from one to another. It's not changing from one to another. Uh, this is just confirming what's already there. And so that was definitely a significant uh, switch. And almost everybody started using this at the same time, from the BBC to The Guardian, from CNN to The Washington Post. There was almost a uniform pivot on the language here. And I don't know exactly which group, um, you know, sort of sent out the directive, but my suspicion is it's the human rights campaign because they're the ones that determine most of the language on this stuff. Similarly to how groups like Dying with Dignity control the language surrounding euthanasia and the public debate. And now many of you will notice that, oh, we don't see gender confirmation anymore. What, where did that go? The term that is used now is, is gender affirming care. That's sort of the standard term that they've landed on, standard phrase, pardon me. And I think that that's probably the phrase that they're going to be using for the long term because the phrase gender affirming care does a number of things. First of all, it sounds very friendly. Sort of like medical aid in dying sounds a lot better than assisted suicide. Uh, Gender-affirming care kind of takes all the rough edges off what we're talking about, which is double mastectomies, which is castrations, um, which is harvesting the flesh of female forearms to make faux penises that don't actually work. And these are all things that were described in earlier uh, uh, interviews that I've done with detransitioners. You can go back and listen to my interview with Scott Nugent if you want to hear the truly horrifying details of what happens after these surgeries and after these treatments. She's spent almost a million dollars just attempting to stay alive after complications um, from the so-called gender-affirming care that she received. But there's a couple of other things here, too, because, of course... 
if we're going to have a debate about transgender surgeries, I won't even call them, it's very difficult to know how to phrase this stuff because transgender treatments, um, these are not treatments. Um, you know, removing healthy body parts is not a treatment. Or should we start calling it then, you know, transgender medicine or transgender care? This makes no sense either, of course, because it's not medicine. This is, in fact, the greatest medical scandal since eugenics, at least on an institutional level. And so this is not at all something that can be accurately described as medicine, and it should not accurately be described as care either. This means, however, that we are stuck attempting to have a debate while the elite institutions, most notably, of course, the press, have all accepted language that fundamentally affirm the premises of the transgender movement, which was, of course, their point. Because gender-affirming care, that language, uh, not is not only intended to affirm the gender that the person is attempting to transition out of, it also affirms that the transgender movement's ideology is fundamentally true, that they are operating from the premise that gender ideology is fact, and that those of us who refuse to use this language are somehow offside, that we are somehow not following the science, that we are somehow railing against the consensus, and I guess in many cases we are doing all of those things. But this is a really interesting uh, concept to look at because we have to speak clearly in order to actually have a real discussion. And we've seen, especially just in the last three years, a real shift on the transgender issue. And somebody asked me recently if I was optimistic about the direction the transgender agenda is heading into. And I've interviewed too many detransitioners to really be optimistic. Optimistic would be the wrong phrase. When you talk to somebody who's had healthy body parts removed, uh, who's realized that their capacity to have children or even to experience sexual intimacy has been eliminated at an age so young that they really have no idea um, they had no idea when, when these decisions w were made for them, essentially. But it is true that we are starting to see, at least in Europe, a lot of countries move away from so-called gender-affirming care. And specifically, they're, they're moving away from what used to be called the affirmative model. Uh, I've covered this in other podcasts and in many articles, but the affirmative model approach to gender dysphoria is basically the response to somebody feeling or claiming they feel like they are a different gender than they actually physically are because you are in fact your body and a man cannot know what it feels like to be a woman and a woman cannot know what it feels like to be a man so as far as I'm concerned this entire argument is more or less dead in the water but the affirmative model was you approach this by sort of brutal regimens of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and then sex change surgeries. But this is now being abandoned. And study after study reveal that medical authorities have, at sort of the behest of the transgender movement, been rushing forward with treatments that are profoundly, profoundly damaging. And the more we find out about young people, some of them children being castrated and mutilated by the amputation of healthy breasts and deformed by these dangerous drugs, the more the public is responding with horror because despite how libertarian our society has become, there still is this sort of widespread view that children should just be left out of this. Even here in Canada, we saw that laws ensuring that parents would be kept apprised of what was going on at schools with their kids when it came to even social transitioning were wildly popular and that although the progressive left tried with a, a like a sort of steady battery of articles in mainstream media claiming that you know anybody who supported these laws wanted trans kids to commit suicide it really didn't work 
And it didn't work because people recognize that there's something fundamentally disturbing um, about putting healthy kids on dangerous drugs to putting healthy kids um, through surgeries that will fundamentally transform their bodies and that they'll be allowed to make decisions for themselves that are permanent long before they're able to smoke, drink, drive, or vote. This is a really, really big deal. And one of the reasons that we know that this is a big deal is because we're seeing a generation of what what is referred to as detransitioners coming forward to tell us what happened to them. Um, these are people who embarked on the path of affirmative care to transition from one sex to another. They were the recipients of gender-affirming care, and they realized that it gave them nothing and robbed them of much. Now they're testifying at state houses across the United States, calling for bans on the surgeries that scarred their bodies. And their testimonies are thus far being entirely ignored, of course, by the White House, the Democratic Party, and much of the progressive press and the medical establishment, with a few brave dissident exceptions. Now the lawsuits have started in the U.S. One lawsuit uh, here in Canada, where you have people who underwent these surgeries and these uh, so-called treatments, you'll notice it's very hard to know what to call all of this kind of stuff because using the word term butchery seems hyperbolic, but it's also far closer to the truth than treatment. Anyways, these, these lawsuits, these malpractice lawsuits leveled against surgeons and doctors and medical professionals, which are, are now undergoing in several countries, including Canada and the United States, we'll, we'll kind of find out how those play out because years ago, this is what Jordan Peterson said was going to end the entire transgender phenomenon, is a couple of successful lawsuits against the doctors who removed healthy breasts or healthy penises from kids, that once those lawsuits took them for all they were worth and bankrupted them, that this is what uh, was going to end all of it. And just to kind of give you an idea of, of how appalling what is being done to these kids is. Let me read you a, a little uh, a little bit of the testimony of Chloe Cole, what she gave to Congress on her 19th birthday. This is what happened to her. She was told, and her parents were told by medical professionals that the only way to address the gender dysphoria she struggled with was medical intervention. So I'm going to read a, a section here of her testimony to Congress. I was fast-tracked onto puberty blockers and then testosterone. The resulting menopausal-like hot flashes made focusing on school impossible. I still get joint pain and weird pops in my back, but they were far worse when I was on the blockers. A month later, when I was 13, I had my first testosterone injection. It caused permanent changes in my body. My voice will forever be deeper, my jawline sharper, my nose longer, my bone structure permanently masculinized, my Adam's apple more prominent, and my fertility unknown. I look in the mirror sometimes, and I feel like a monster. I had a double mastectomy at 15, and they tested my amputated breasts for cancer. I was cancer-free, of course. I was perfectly healthy. There was nothing wrong with my still-developing body or my breasts, other than that, as an insecure teenage girl, I felt awkward about it. After my breasts were taken away from me, the tissue was incinerated. Before I was able to legally drive, I had a huge part of my future womanhood taken away from me. I will never be able to breastfeed. I struggle to look at myself in the mirror sometimes. I still struggle to this day with sexual dysfunction. I have massive scars across my chest, and the skin grafts they use that they took from my nipples are weeping fluid today. They were grafted into a more masculine position, they said. 
This was her testimony to Congress, and it's testimony like this that is moving state houses to pass laws against these kinds of surgeries. But keep in mind that her story is one of thousands. There are thousands more stories to come as well. I interviewed her when I was doing a column uh, on the new women's movement for First Things, and she told me that she's just one of those who bore the brunt of the affirmative model. And she thinks the trickle of the detransitioner testimonies will turn into a torrent and then a tidal wave because the broken children of the transgender medical complex were lied to and they paid the price. But there's a really good question here. So we're seeing a positive shift in places like Europe where Sweden, Finland, Norway, the UK, you do have these countries that are steadily moving away from the affirmative model. And I think that's a really positive development. But why is it that so many people cling to this experiment, especially in North America? Because in the United States, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and President Joe Biden won't budge an inch, despite the fact that there's a robust discussion and even debate on the issue of gender ideology in many countries. In North America, there is no government that's willing to even question the premises. And even a lot of conservative premiers here in Canada, in provinces where they recognize that parents need to be involved, there's still no questioning of the fundamental premises, premises uh, of of gender ideology. So why are so many people doubling down? Why is it that people can't look at what's happening? Why is it that they can't hear the testimonies of Chloe Cole, of Scott Nugent, of, of the girls who testified in that recent documentary, the detransition diaries? Why can't they hear what's going on? Why can't they go on to the Reddit forum detransition? And if you want to feel physically ill, Go to the Reddit forum just on detransition and read through some of the comments that are being posted pretty much hourly. Why are they reading all of this stuff or ignoring all of this stuff and just simply refusing to believe, refusing to believe that something could be wrong? And one of the things that I, I think is a really important insight that I hadn't seen before uh, and it, uh, comes from Helen Joyce. She's a journalist, a feminist advocate at the organization Sex Matters, sex uh, referring to male or female, not sexes and the activity. And she's also the author of the 2021 book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. And in a recent interview, she got at the heart of the matter, I think. And I think it's a good reminder for a lot of social conservatives who might think, you know, we're going to get the lawsuits, we're going to get a rejection uh, of, of the so-called medicine by a number of different countries, and that will create a domino effect, and pretty soon we'll see this whole thing come down. Partially true, I think there are aspects of this debate that we're definitely going to win um, sooner than others. Um, I did a previous podcast on how I also think that the next move trans activists will make is they'll attempt to blame us for what they've done. They'll essentially try to claim that um, one of the reasons so many kids detransitioned is because they, they couldn't bear living in a heteronormative society that didn't truly accept them. And as such, those of us who have been pointing out what the impact of these surgeries and these treatments have been uh, are going to do for years are going to end up getting blamed for the very things that we predicted because they're not going to be able to admit um, that this is what was going to happen all along. Instead, what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to claim that the only reason somebody like a Chloe Cole 
uh, for example, doesn't want to live as a male is not because Chloe Cole has realized she's actually a female and that can't change. But they're going to say this is because Chloe Cole knows that, uh, you know, Christians and social conservatives in a heteronormative society will never accept her as a male. And therefore, she's been pushed into detransition. Uh, not due to the the realization that she is a female, but due to the realization that a transphobic society won't accept her. So I do think that there is definitely a lot of trans activists who are going to accuse those of us who criticize gender ideology um, of being responsible for detransition detransitioners and their testimonies to begin with. But the other aspect of this, I think, comes from Helen Joyce. And she did an interview uh, earlier this year, and I want to read an excerpt of this interview because I think it's precisely right. I think it's probably one of the best insights I've read on the transgender debate, and it describes why uh, when the malpractice lawsuits go through and hospitals are rejecting uh, this stuff and some gender clinics are shutting down, and slowly but surely you're starting to see criticism of transgender ideology and transgender practices crack into the mainstream, that you're going to have this hardcore you know, sort of group of people uh, on the battlements who refuse to give up. And here, here, here's uh, Helen Joyce. I'm going to quote her directly. <clears throat> Something you may have not something you may not have thought of is that there are a lot of people who can't move on from this. And that's the people who have transitioned their own children. So those people are going to be like the Japanese soldiers who were on Pacific Islands and didn't know the war was over. They've got to fight forever. This is another reason why this is the worst, worst social contagion that we'll have ever experienced. A lot of people have done what is the worst thing you can do, which is to harm their children irrevocably because of it. Those people will have to believe that they did the right thing for the rest of their lives, for their own sanity, for their own self-respect. So they'll still be fighting, and each one of those people destroys entire organizations and entire friendship groups. I've lost count of the number of times that somebody has said to me of a specific organization that has been turned upside down on this, oh, the deputy director has a trans child, or, oh, the journalist on that paper who does special investigations has a trans child, or whatever. The entire organization gets paralyzed by that one person. And it may not even be widely known at that organization that they have a trans child, but it will come out, people will have sort of said quietly, and now you can can talk truth in front of that person, you know you can't because what you're saying is you as a parent has done truly a human rights abuse level of awful thing to your own child and that cannot be fixed. There are specific individuals who are actively against women's rights here and it is not known why they are, but I happen to know through the back channels that it's because they've transed their child. So those people will do anything for the entire rest of their lives to destroy me and people like me because people like me are standing in reproach to them. I don't want to be. I'm not talking directly to them and I don't spend my time bitching to them. But the fact is that just simply by saying we will never accept natal males in women's spaces, well, it is their son that we're talking about. And they've told their son that he can get himself sterilized and destroy his own basic sexual function and women will accept him as a woman. And if we don't, there's no way back for them and that child. They've sold their child on a bill of goods they can't deliver on. And I'm the one that has to be bullied to try and force me to deliver on it. So those people are going to be the people who will keep this bloody movement going. I'm sorry to say, because they've everything to lose, and it is a fight to the death as far as they're concerned. 
Joyce's insight here is absolutely correct. We've seen plenty of parents of trans kids. In fact, as I've noted before, we often see the parents first. They're the ones putting their kids forward as trans. This is actually a bit of a fad in Hollywood at the moment, with actors from Charlize Theron to Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union announcing that they have transgender children, doing interviews about it, joining LGBT groups and bragging about their trans kids. And these revelations are basically always unprompted. Many parents, famous and otherwise, are choosing to publicize their children as transgender to boast about their support for gender-affirming care and to do interviews about their child's transness. There's an HBO documentary I reviewed for First Things called Transhood, and you see the same thing. Parents hunting for signs that their kids are trans because trans in 2023 means special. Trans means that their kid is different, is interesting. Trans means their kid gets special treatment. Trans also means all kinds of other horrifying things, as we've just discussed. But having a trans kid these days is kind of like getting your child into an Ivy League school a couple of decades ago. For a lot of people, it's a status thing. Often parents, and I have to say it's mothers in particular, rush to post about their child's transness on social media, choosing to out them without their permission and often lock them into an identity before they're old enough to even comprehend what's going on. Children transitioned at a young age have the deck stacked against them if they want to detransition, not to mention tremendous public, peer, and parental pressure. Now, there are like plenty of other parents like Chloe Coles who have been blackmailed into accepting the affirmative model. And if you go to the Substack newsletter, uh, Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans, there's just story after horrifying story of parents who were pushed into this and are now both angry, they're enraged, and they're filled with this just absolutely potent form of grief. So there's many of those parents too. Imagine realizing that you failed to protect your child from medical quacks who amputated healthy body parts and left them mutilated for life. And imagine realizing that your child's suffering was exacerbated rather than mitigated as promised. And imagine knowing that your child might never be able to have children of his or her own or even experience sexual pleasure because of treatments that you agreed to. That must be a special kind of nightmare for parents. I can't imagine what Chloe Cole's parents go through as they watch their beautiful teenage daughter step up to podiums in front of state capitals and explain what happened to her again and again. They too are in their own transgender created hell. And I've noticed that while many detransitioners have come forward to tell their stories, we almost never hear from their parents. And this makes sense. It is one thing for girls like Cole to tell the world what was done to them before they were old enough to vote or drink or drive or smoke. It's quite another thing for a parent to tell the press, I helped my daughter cut her breasts off and I'm here to tell you that what we participated in was abuse. So yes, Helen Joyce is right. For many of these parents, defending transgender ideology and the decisions that they made for their children is the only path forward because contemplating the idea they were wrong will simply be too much to bear. When the doctors and the surgeons are finally backing off, when the psychiatrists and the therapists are getting sued into oblivion, when governments are starting to step away from these things as the scale of the scandal becomes more clear, we're going to see desperation set in amongst the hardcore of activists and the hardcore of parents who cannot admit they were wrong because the things that they have done based on these premises are too serious, are too permanent are too irrevocable for them ever to admit that they are in fact wrong. 
And so instead, we're going to see two things happen. We're going to see trans activists claim that the heteronormative transphobic society we live in is the reason detransitioners even exist, and that if we had all embraced gender ideology from the beginning, we would never have this problem to begin with. And so therefore, somehow, their pain is still our fault. And second of all, we have parents who will find any way to cling with increasing ferocity to the belief that anyone who opposes their transgendered children is a horrible, unfathomably cruel person because the only other option they have is that they have done something unfathomably cruel, that they have sold, as Joy said, their child a false bill of goods, and that this is something they and their child are going to have to live with for the rest of their lives. And so I think that it's true uh, that we are at an inflection point in the transgender debate. A couple of new studies have come out just this past month, uh, one from Finland, one from the Netherlands, revealing uh, that a lot of the so-called transgender treatments actually have no positive impact. Uh, we're, we're consistently finding out that the research, the science that we were presented by the transgender movement as evidence for the affirmative model um, is mostly garbage, that we had nothing long-term. Um, the detransitioner testimonies are increasing. Uh, the dissident documentaries are, 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 are increasing. And so we are at an inflection point where the dissidents have now kind of broken through into the press where the stories are finally starting to be told. Um, but we're not out of the woods yet. And so despite the fact that there are, are reasons for cautious optimism in terms of where the debate is headed, we do have to realize that the people that we are up against are not reasonable people. They are not going to debate with us reasonably. And they have very good reasons for essentially fighting this till their last breath. And that is why when people say, why, why, why are people clinging so hard to this experiment when it's so obviously a disaster? That's why they really have no other alternative or more accurately, the alternative admission is just too horrible to admit. Thank you for tuning into the show this week. That's all for this week. Uh, we hope that you'll join us again uh, next week for the show. And we uh, would like to direct you to lifesidenews.com where you can click on the podcast tab if you want to check out past episodes or subscribe to future episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Thank you.